Capture Podcast surveys the creative, socio-cultural and political concerns of local and international artists and designers. The podcast series is a collaboration between RMIT and the National Gallery of Victoria. As I said, I was, I was you know, triggered to kind of take action, you know, to kind of pick up tools and, 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 and make something. Um, and in the only way I really know how as a, as a designer, as a designer maker. In a way, these pieces that we make, I, I consider them to be more like um, physical poems. In a way, they describe a period of time. They're like frozen moments in our process of uh, developing new form and uh, developing that new form with new technology. Hi, I'm Elaine from Capture Podcast. In this episode, we'll be exploring the evolution of design practice from two perspectives. In the first conversation, we'll hear from London-based designer Brodie Neal, who uses waste streams as a generative force. In the second, we'll hear from Amsterdam-based designer Yaris Lahman, who sculpts with algorithms. In the case of both, we'll be focusing on the ethics and obligations of creative practice to intervene on and make changes in the material world. It started with a foundation of previously working with recycled materials, looking at uh, waste streams and byproducts um, uh, in more kind of traditional senses of recycling. Um, and it was actually about two years ago when I was back here in, in Melbourne working with the NGV as part of the Parallels Design Conference. Uh, a small uh, kind of select crew then went down to Tasmania, to Bruni Island, to parts of, um, of Tasmania, which I used to frequent as a child. Um, and it was adventuring out onto the beaches and the coastlines of uh, Bruning Island that it struck me that there was this abundance of plastic um, forming up onto the, uh, onto the rocks. Uh, some of it looked quite new, some of it looked quite old, and it really struck me at that um, point to, that, you know, this material shouldn't be there. It's due to our kind of, you know, human neglect and... Uh, you know, laziness and uh, irresponsibility with the environment that's there and it triggered me to start to think that you know this is the this needs to be the building block so we need to kind of harvest this and return it to a material economy and free it from the environment uh, in researching the project we worked work with oceanographers uh, marine biologists um, we worked with Dr. Jennifer Lavers from the University of Tasmania, of which I'm an alum, uh, to, who specialises in the movement of ocean plastic and the effects that it has on the environment. We also work with scientists uh, in the United States and in the UK. Um, an Australian base there, Dr. Eric Van Sabel, was a great help in um, helping us understand the movement of the plastic, the effects of the, of the ocean gyres, which is the kind of whirlpool uh, effect of the movement of the ocean's currents that break the f- um, plastic into smaller and smaller fragments. Once it gets into this microplastic kind of um, consistency, that's when it does the most damage to, the, to uh, sea life and fish being consumed. Um, so we saw this... Uh, microplastic as really being the pixels of the bigger picture. 
We noticed that there was an abundance of white, blue and black. Uh, black predominantly comes from um, marine fisheries, industries and so on. The blue is probably a lot of um, kind of, um, let's say, bathroom products and, and cleaning products is a lot of blue. And then white is, of course, a lot of packaging. The warmer UV colours, which are most attracted to by fish, mimicking things like plankton um, and um, so on. Also, one thing, you, because if you're talking about this, this almost kind of um, Milky Way kind of galactic speckle, let's say, um, a lot of the pieces, they, they may appear white because they've been faded, uh, but when you cut through, they reveal their original colour and the warmer colours will fade through sunlight and degradation. So we don't really know what you're going to get until you've made all of the tiles and there's, there's about 500 tiles in the whole mosaic. Um, estimated on weight, there's over half a million fragments of ocean plastic in there. And um, when the whole mosaic is, is placed together like a traditional puzzle, uh, in this kaleidoscopic um, form, which is parametrically conceived, then it's all cut back like a terrazzo floor, revealing its um, multicoloured aggregate core. It's uh, an international atlas uh, of the issue of ocean plastic. The kaleidoscopic mosaic has 36 revolutions around and 36 lines across, which references the lines of longitude and latitude of the world. So... Ocean plastic uh, is obviously, um, there are no borders, you know. We don't know where it comes from. We can map it. We have a bit of an idea. Um, but we all share, you know, this problem. So it shows that global community kind of commitment and responsibility to do something about that. Unfortunately, there is a, an abundance out there and it's a growing um, uh, problem that I think that we need to we need to address, and as designers who give um, form and function, you know, material form and function, then I think it's important to tap into waste streams that uh, already exist, as a, as opposed to using uh, virgin materials at the kind of earth's cost. So um, the plastic is designed uh, for whatever its purpose is, and every little piece of plastic here was something else previously um, but plastic in its kind of um, polymer makeup is designed to last a long time uh, unfortunately it's not used for a long time and it finds itself into, into the environment and what we're doing is we're reconnecting that back into a circular economy so I think it's very important that a designer approaches the um, end-of-life impact that that object's going to have on um, the environment and our um, you know, material um, economy. In the case of former Phantasma, of course, they're looking at very complex electrical items that are, co that are intricate in their parts and varied in their materials. And then <clears throat> how do you separate that at the end of life? Also commenting on highly kind of um, um, desirable kind of you know, capitalist-like um, objects that probably do have a short, you know, kind of obsolescence. Uh, in the case of ocean plastic, as I mentioned, it's designed to last a long time, but it's only used for a short few seconds in some cases. And um, um, But if there is education and um, a, a system that can help capture, recycle, and keep that in a closed 
loop um, society or system, then obviously that's on a greater use, similar to how we probably approach things like glass or aluminium. There are certainly other designers, um, and even even before me, um, working with all types of you know marine debris and recycled plastics and. Uh, um, I certainly don't want it to be an exclusive thing because it's a, it's a massive problem and it's going to take a lot of people to, to, to make any inroads into, into the, to the issue. Um, but it's also topical, so if we can raise awareness to that, educate, um, there could be things like you know, stewardship and, uh, of materials and, and industries to um, you know, help educate people about what products are you know, responsible, what to do with them afterwards, what manufacturers will um, have buyback schemes um, and what you can do with it. Uh, it's not just harvesting what's out there, it's also kind of, um, you know, say turning the tap off and making sure that it, um, uh, you reduce what's making its way into the oceans. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, hopefully it inspires, inspires others. As I said, I was, I was you know, triggered to kind of take action, you know, to kind of pick up tools and, 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 and make something. Um, and in the only way I really know how as a, as a designer, as a designer maker. So um, that's something that I decided to have this waste material to start to become the, the building blocks of something new, to take it from something that is worthless to to here, museum worthy, you know, to really elevate it up. And we treat the plastic, you know, like, like a winemaker would treat their grapes. You know, it's like a precious um, jewel or a gem. Um, so, yeah, we kind of, it, it's, it's painstaking work, but, it's, but it makes people understand. When you look at the, the half a million little speckles there, that they all were something else once. Well, first of all, the animation that I saw uh, from this, this car part, it's an, an engine mount, nobody could relate to. I mean, nobody knows what it actually is and it, you don't really, uh, you know, understand what's going on. But I saw this animation, how this car part was then optimized into this more efficient form. And you literally saw times evolving into a new time. <laughs> it's a really big thing. You saw industrial era transforming into a digital era, and you know you could you could see it in the aesthetics, and that was a really powerful um, little animation. And then I, I figured that maybe maybe you could actually sculpt with such an algorithm, and that was not really done before. So uh, yeah, I, I just started sculpting with that uh, algorithm. This is designer Yaris Lahman revealing the formative moments of his practice. Now. We'll hear further about how Yaris and his studio utilize new technologies while still embracing the principles of craftsmanship. Yeah, I started working on that bone furniture thing on, in, in 2005 already, so it's, it's quite a long time ago. Uh, but it triggered our, our, uh, you know, us wanting to work with technology more and more and trying to approach these scientists and engineers to work with us on projects. You know, I, we are the first generation that really grew up with the internet, right? And, and it was, it, it is so important for what we do. And on the other side, we still know how the world worked without internet. Uh, so I, I, I used to find things in the yellow pages and stuff, right? Um, but yeah, so the internet allowed us to just approach all these people that were doing these crazy 
beautiful, inspiring science and engineering things. So, um, and, and the bone chair is one of that uh, uh, good examples. So on one, one hand, our uh, company um, creates technology that's actually developing digital fabrication tools that will end up in the real economy, say. But the creative core of everything that we do is very much these um, experimental pieces. And sometimes uh, it, they spin off into uh, you know, a, a downloadable blueprint uh, for people to download chairs, for instance. And other times they end up uh, becoming a startup company. And in other cases, they just remain these beautiful experiments, uh, objects that are just really uh, interesting to look at. So um, the objects always tell a story about a certain moment in time. I think every my whole career is about that. So even the radiator was about what was going on at that time and how it aesthetically was represented. I think um, the, the best pieces of design that I know uh, usually are very multi-layered. Uh, so they refer to some uh, to his to our history. You know. Um, Things don't appear out of no, nothing. They have a background, usually. Uh, and you have the way things are produced and how it relates to society at a certain moment. Like I used to uh, um, I often refer to uh, the, the early modernist period, in the period where Dutch designers like Rietveld or the Bauhaus even uh, were, were experimenting with um, these these uh, standardization uh, standard tubes uh, beams uh, primary colors things like that like they were experimenting with the f- the form language of machine made objects um, and were limited also uh, by the uh, well the, the boundaries or the limitations of these industrial machines and right now we are in a in a sort of a similar period of time. Uh, you see how the industrial world is sort of transforming into this digital era uh, where we have different tools and and a a much larger... uh, We can handle a much larger complexity of form. uh, And everybody is trying to find meaning in in that... uh, What what will be the new aesthetic and how... how, In what sense does it have a meaning or does it make sense? the fascinating thing, I think, with uh, with MX 3D, it's like a, a sort of a, a mini society, if you like. And I, I personally like that a lot. So you have these craftspeople who literally have blacksmiths in, uh, working in there, as well as these computer coders. And they have to work together, right? So uh, because somebody that writes code doesn't know how uh, metal warps when it heats up, for instance, or how it cools down and how it could crack or, you know, and, and so... They learn from each other, and they are equal, if you like. Uh, so, because also in in terms of uh, how your society is built up, uh, even coding becomes quite. Uh, um, I mean, there are many more coders than we had before. But the profession of blacksmith becomes actually more valuable compared to the the coder in a way. So they become equal again, and that's something that's really. Interesting to see. Everybody is talking about how robots are taking over our jobs and, and stuff like that. And I just see that um, that if you are working with artificial intelligence and robots and algorithms, you just you know 
you, you start also philosophizing about, you know, the future. And our work is a lot about the future, uh, more than it is about design. So we're thinking about the future a lot. I mean, right now we're shaping this whole new time period. It's not there yet, I would say. Though 3D printing especially has a long way to go. Everybody's like super uh, like uh, impatient with it. People think that uh, the physical world is developing in the same sort of pace as software does, but it doesn't. Software just goes way faster because you know, uh, physical worlds, like real materials, they're imperfect, they, they need time, things need to heat up and they need to cool down, it shouldn't be breaking, and th it's, it's practical problems. It's way more expensive, but we're all used to the speed of our software developing the internet, and uh, you know, um, things go slowly, but uh, um, they're developing in a, in a still pretty fast way. Capture Podcast was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. The team would like to thank all our contributors and you for listening. Be with you next week.